Welcome to the UX Mastery Podcast. My name is Matt McGain and my guest today is Tom Griever, author of the book Articulating Design Decisions. Welcome, Tom. Thanks, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. Why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey to how you got to where you are today? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm a designer um, and I have been my whole career and started out in, in web design and in a corporate setting and corporate environment. And I've had a bunch of different jobs uh, throughout the year, uh, throughout the years, I should say. Um, now I am the UX director at Batovi. Uh, Batovi is a front end uh, design and uh, engineering um, consulting company. So we help other companies uh, design and build uh, web applications. And we're fortunate enough to, to work with a bunch of big clients um, like Walmart and T-Mobile and kind of help them solve some really tough problems, uh, whether it's, you know, design or engineering. And, and um, I love what I, what I do. I love solving problems with uh, design. And as you noted, I recently wrote a book uh, called Articulating Design Decisions, which is very much about, it's, well, honestly, in some ways, it's a little bit about me and my career and and sort of how I got to the, the place that I'm at now in UX. And, and I think that I've realized that explaining your design decisions to, uh, you know, stakeholders or clients on a project is maybe more important than the designs that I create themselves. And it's taken me many, many years to realize the, the, the power and the importance of that. But um, I sort of, I tried to distill all of my, all of my thoughts and advice for people about um, communicating about design in the book. I imagine that for you to arrive at, because that's a pretty, pretty big call to say that communicating the design is sometimes more important than the design itself. That's a big call. I imagine you've, and perhaps I haven't read the book, but perhaps you've captured them in the book. You've encountered some hurdles and made some mistakes and learned along the way, the hard way. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it, it actually doesn't take a whole lot uh, to to make the case that that the way you talk about your designs is more important than the designs themselves. We so, you know, sometimes people tend to say things like, "Oh, well, this good design should speak for itself," right? That, that could be kind of a common thing, right? Good, good, good UX should should be like a joke. If you have to explain it, then it's not very good. But the reality is that if we if we don't have the skills necessary to convince the people who oversee our projects that our design solutions are the right solutions, then they're not going to agree with us and they'll change our design decisions for us. They'll override those decisions or in a worst case scenario, our designs will never even see the light of day. So even if I think I have the best possible design solution, what good is it if I can't even put it in production? If the world never gets to see it, then it's absolutely useless. And so that's, that's why I would say that, that the ability to talk about that with people and convince them that you're right is more important than the designs themselves. And, you know, we see this, you, you see this all the time, right? There are, you know, maybe what we would consider subpar designs or applications or user experiences out there um, that probably don't deserve to be the, the, the number one best-selling application, right? And we could probably think of a dozen different examples right now of, of websites or apps that we think are just terrible but are the most popular ones, right? Well, I, and I think that maybe proves that point even a little bit more. It's far more important that you, you're able to convince someone that this is the right thing to do than it is that you have what you believe to be the best solution because 
what wins in the marketplace is not necessarily the best design solution, right? Um, a a well-spoken um, but incorrect salesperson in your meeting <laughs> is much more likely to get his way than you are if you're unable to kind of defend those choices. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, so for today's chat, what we've done is we put the call out that I was chatting to Tom into our community forums uh, at the UX Mastery website. And we've got a few questions from our members of the community. So I'm going to read the first one out. The first question comes from Jay Marie. It's pretty long. I'll read the whole thing out. It goes like this. It says, Tom, I would love any advice you have on how to handle a hippo. I'm guessing she's referring to the acronym highest paid person's opinion. And in this case, it's a chief engineer. This person often stonewalls in the face of design logic. To clarify, often when I am presenting designs, he might say something along the lines of, this is not good, change it. When I offer solid reasons as to why it should not be changed to what he wants, he'll leave reason behind in order to continue defending his point of view and resort to statements such as, your reasons don't make sense, you are wrong, or I don't care, that's not the way it should be done. I already have my ringers who try to give me as much support as possible and help me when he stonewalls, but because he originally built and designed the product and thus is quite attached to his work, it still continues to happen. And it's not helpful in terms of coming away from meetings with sound and actionable items. Any advice on additional tactics I might employ when faced with a stonewall or perhaps some ways to prevent the stonewalling from happening at all? Thank you. Yeah, so this is this is a very difficult situation for sure. Um, and that term, that term hippo, <laughs> it's funny because I only came across that term just very recently. And I would say that maybe one of the first things we need to do is is stop calling these people hippos, <laughs> even though I get the acronym and and what it means, and it's kind of an amusing way to to refer to to people that we encounter in these situations. I think that this is part of our problem: is that we view these people uh, negatively. And, I, and I'm not saying we don't have justification for, for having kind of a negative view of these kinds of situations because it, it's absolutely frustrating. But I think we, we have to do our best to remain positive, right? And to kind of see these people in the best possible light. We have to believe the best about them and not assume the worst. Um, but anyway, let me get to the, to, to the question. I think when you have a person um, who's, who holds the keys to the project, and, it's, and especially if they're the person that you know, built it or designed it originally, then they can... Uh, be very defensive. I mean, we can be defensive about our our own solutions that we offer too. And so I, I think I think it's understandable that that person would be you know kind of defensive and 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 not open to to change. Um, the key here, though, I think, is to remember to keep your wits about you. I always recommend um, practicing a couple of different things to get yourself in the right frame of mind before you even go into these situations. So uh, one of those things is. To remember that this person is in control of the project, right? We have to learn to let go of that control, right? It's not, it's not us. And I think if we can kind of let go of that and, and, and allow things to kind of flow and allow the conversation to, to recognize that this person sort of holds the keys to our future, then we'll be in a much uh, better frame of mind to be able to respond to them. Because what can happen is when we think we're in control and we sort of take that attitude, then we do the same thing that to them that they're doing to us, right? Which is to be defensive and, and kind of get upset. Um, it's going to be difficult to get through to them no matter what. You don't want to create a, a, a fight for control. Um, 
the next one, uh, which advocate, I talk about. Sorry to interrupt, but to play devil's advocate, you're not yeah, suggesting yeah. that you should just give up and let them have their own way though, right? No, never. No, not at all. No, I think it's just a mental shift. It's just, there's just a switch we have to flip where we realize that we're, we're not the ones in control of our project. Um, I mean, unless we own the company, we can't, we don't have the final say. There is someone else outside of us. And I think that that emotional release is really healthy in, in allowing us to see the other person's perspective in a way that we wouldn't be able to before when we see it as, as, as our thing. You know, sometimes we, we look at these situations as, well, I'm the expert, right? I have the data. I'm making a logical case. Why can't this person possibly understand what I'm, what I'm saying? And yet that's, that's exactly the wrong kind of attitude to have. So absolutely, don't, don't just let go and let them have their way. But instead, take a posture that allows you to be open to what they're saying so that they'll be receptive to what you say. Because those attitudes and that body language is very easy to kind of communicate even unintentionally. So um, the next thing that I always uh, suggest is to always lead with a yes. So this is the principle of, of the yes and, which you may have heard of, where every response that you give needs to start with the word yes, even if you disagree with what they're saying. Right. Yes, I agree with you that we need to solve this problem. Right. So I'm not I'm not saying that their solution is right. I'm, I'm pointing out where our common ground is um, so that their ears are opened to being receptive to the, the solution that I do want to propose. So those those two things, letting go of control, leading with a yes, are really fundamental in, in getting through. Uh, to, to these people that are difficult uh, to deal with. But if you're doing these things, and I, I think this person, it sounds like this person probably is already doing some of this stuff because um, they made reference to um, having ringers in, in the room with you, which is something else I would recommend. And I talk about it in the book, but that's the idea of having, having other people in the room with you who uh, may be from other uh, disciplines or other departments or kind of other areas, not necessarily someone directly on your team that can agree with you, right? And you've prepared them in advance. Okay, I'm going to show this design. Do you agree this is the right thing? Yes. Okay, then I need you to chime in at this point because if you can build that kind of momentum in a meeting like that, then it's, it's a lot harder for someone on the receiving end to disagree with you if you know nine out of ten experts in the room um, uh, uh, agree. So that, but it, it sounds like this person is already uh, is already doing that. So um, when you're presenting your case and you're taking real data and you've got proven solutions, right, or what you think is good logic, and they're still not responding to you, or at least they're not they're, they're stonewalling, as this person was saying, then I, I think I'd like to suggest that maybe there's something amiss, right? Maybe. Maybe we're misunderstanding the goals of the project. Maybe there's something that's changed recently that we weren't aware of. Uh, maybe there's just something else going on that we don't know about. Something there could be something political going on where this person is, you know, just jockeying for the next raise, right? And we'd like to think that people are more altruistic about our products and that everyone has the best interest of the product in mind. But sometimes people don't, right? And so we have to be. Um, keen enough to look into these relationships and see if we can figure out what else is going on. Because if we can figure that out, it's going to help us uh, respond. Maybe, maybe even this person just misunderstands what your solution is, right? I, I actually had a client once who um, misunderstood the the use of the term carousel and, and the kind of uh, interface control that that was. And so she disagreed with what we were suggesting. It wasn't until I explained it better and showed a, the difference between the, the two options we were considering that she realized 
that what we were proposing, right? And so sometimes just those simple misunderstandings can can cause uh, the situation. Um, so, so visualizing. Well, oh, of course, it's rather than just talking. Yeah, about yeah. No, right. Exactly. Exactly. Now it's also true that that this person is just totally unreasonable, um, and that does happen. Um, where no matter what you do, they're they're just not gonna they're not going to agree with your choices and. Uh, it doesn't ha that that doesn't happen as often as I as I think we think it does. I think it's more often that there's a misunderstanding. But um, in the in the book, I I, I talk about uh, painting a duck. Um, I tell a story about uh, a designer who was in a similar situation where uh, he he felt he was working on a three D uh, chess game, and um, it seemed like no matter what he did, uh, the product owner on that uh, that company always had just one more change. Right, and um, rather than have to make those changes every single time, he decided uh, to approach the problem a little more creatively. And so, when it came time to do the animations for the for the queen, um, he did everything just like they had discussed, made all the changes um, with one addition. He gave the queen a pet duck, and he was sure to make the the duck sort of a little bit out of the way, but also kind of obnoxious and kind of flapping and quacking over in the corner. Well, what he found was when he when it came time to show the, the designs to this product owner, um, he said, oh, it all looks really, really good. Just one thing, remove the duck and it'll be done. And so he was able to remove the duck and, and kind of move on with, with the project. But. <laughs> Very amusing. All right, good. Well, uh, Jane Marie, I hope that that uh, answers your question. It was a big one, um, but there's a lot in there to unpack. So let's move on to the next question. It comes from the community member named My Celestial. My Celestial says, I'm a big fan of Tom's book and love the tactics. I'd love Tom's experience on getting the team, that's development, design, production, and other stakeholders, on the same page as an ongoing process, such as sharing work in progress, design critiques, presentations to a broader team, like an open meeting for anyone interested. I'd like some advice from Tom on how to get started on this, what to share. I feel that I have a hard time putting together interesting content. What do you say to that, Tom? Yeah, uh, so I'm not exactly sure where this question is directed. I think that uh, I think that what this person is asking is like how to create a better culture of uh, design thinking and and to create a a language around design that everyone can kind of get on board with. That that's that's how I kind of read uh, this question. Um, and yeah, I th I think that. I think that that's part of our jobs in organizations is to help other people outside of our own direct influence, outside of our design team, um, understand and see the value of design if they don't already. And I mean, fortunately, we're living in a time now where a lot more companies are valuing design, and that's why we have people that are hired into UX and information architecture and content strategy roles now, right? So we've really seen a big, a big shift, I think, in, in terms of how companies think about design. But in this particular case, I think that uh, you want to do whatever you can to create that energy and to create that momentum so that other people can get excited and, and get on board. And all of the things that you listed there in the question, whether it was, you know, uh, creating an opportunity for design critiques or allowing people, you know, to kind of practice for, you know, maybe some executive presentations, um, those are all valuable things that you can you can set up with your with your teams and invite people to come. I think... I think where people get most excited about 
design thinking and, and seeing the value of design in the organization is when they see how your designs can change, change things, right? And how they can actually have the intended effect. And, and that, that's not easy to do. But what I'm suggesting is that I think the best way to build that momentum is to make some design decisions that, and, and to collect some data around how those decisions change things for your organization and, and present them. And I think people get really excited. Oh, look, you know, we saw a 10% increase in, in email newsletter signups because we made this one little change, right? Run some real quick A-B tests. Share um, articles that, that you think are relevant to uh, your product or your organization about how you can do things better. Um, I mean, you have to be the champion in your organization, right? And for and, and it's going to take some time uh, and, and a lot of effort and, and energy initially to build that momentum. But once I think, once you get it going, I think it'll continue and more people will pick up on it and more people will contribute. But at least initially, it's just going to be a lot of hard work to get people on the, on the same page. And as far as design critiques go, by the way, I would also recommend uh, the book Discussing Design, um, which is also published by O'Reilly. It's, it's, uh, it's similar to the content of my book in terms of being able to create a culture for talking about design and how to do that. But it is specifically uh, centered around um, creating a process for design critiques for your team. And that, that book has a lot of very specific uh, practices and exercises you can do with your teams to uh, do better design critiques. What are your thoughts on the part of my celestial's question, which says, how do we get started? Like it, it, what I took away from the question was that she kind of knows that there's a bunch of stuff that she, he or she um, would like to try, but has, lacks the confidence to kind of try them. Have you got some tips on how she can get over that initial hurdle and, and feel confident about grabbing the whiteboard marker and doing some stuff? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I think, I think you just have to have that confidence, right? <laughs> and so that, I don't know if that's, that's not, that's maybe not the best answer, right? Because if this person is saying, hey, you know, how do I have the confidence? And my answer is just, well, you just have to have <laughs> confidence. But here's the thing, and I, I actually mentioned this in the book, um, confidence begets confidence, right? And, and what we find in, in psychology research, and I, I do reference this in the book, is that people who express confidence, even a fake confidence, eventually exhibit real confidence in themselves over the long term. And so if you start out um, by believing in yourself and by believing and, and having confidence in, in your designs and in the process and the things that you want to recommend and propose and get started at your company, even if, even if, the, even if in the beginning that feels kind of fake, um, over time, that develops into real confidence, and other people will pick up on that. Um, if you if you're just simply lacking that confidence, other people are also going to pick up on that, and they're not going to get excited, right? You have to go into it believing 100%. This is the right thing for us to do. I'm excited. Hey, you guys, come on, let's go run into this conference room over here, and I've got you know a discussion. You know, we're going to look at this product, or we're going to look maybe start a book discussion, right? Um, that that would be a great way. Uh, of doing it is find find a book on design thinking or some you know do mine or discussing uh, design or any other book that you think would be valuable and relevant to your your product or industry and use that as a starting point that way you're not coming up with the content on your own um, I actually uh, for, as, as part of the book uh, for O'Reilly we also did a, vi a video series um, and there's there's a one like 20 minute video for every chapter in in the book 
Um, and I did that specifically for teams that are that are looking to work together and kind of discuss this content uh, together. Now it wouldn't have to be my video, but like any any sort of um, design thinking and kind of process uh, video training course that you could find out there that you think would be valuable, conference talks that are available on YouTube and Vimeo, right? Find find stuff like that that you think would be relevant, and just invite everyone to come in for lunch. And, you know, bring bring a, a lunch and let's watch this video together. That way, you, there's there, you're sort of removing some of the pressure for yourself to come up with that that content initially. I suppose one other thing that came to mind for me would be if. Uh, this person's interested in ironing out the kinks for how to run a design critique or if these kind of facilitation activities are kind of new, try them with some friends and some friendly um, colleagues that you know uh, are okay with the idea that this is your first time running this activity and they can help you kind of adjust it and tweak it. And then when it really matters with key stakeholders, you've kind of had a bit of a, a dry run and then you're feeling more confident that way. Absolutely. Any... <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Maybe we can <clears throat> pause and, and edit that out real quick. Sorry. Yeah, no problem. Um, absolutely. So that that is one of the things that you know people often ask me. Well, what's the best way for me to get better at articulating design decisions? And the answer is just to practice. Um, you know, I say that you know practicing for a meeting before the meeting is the usability test of being articulate. Right. We want to try out our ideas. We want to try out our ways of saying things. And even if you don't have the opportunity to gather together a group of friends to kind of practice a design critique um, as a dry run, you can just stand in front of the mirror and give your presentation to yourself, right? Just, just doing that, just hearing yourself talk out loud is going to reveal a lot of uh, your thinking that you didn't even know was there. And it's going to give you the opportunity to stop and rephrase it a different way and, and build that confidence that you need to, to be able to go into, in front of other people and do it. Cool. Okay, the next question comes from Alla. Alla says, I really hope it's not too late to address one topic during Tom's interview, and that's transitioning into UX. She's a huge fan of Tom. She owns the book. She owns the video. He's fantastic. There you go. After observing a strong tendency of teams to become self-organized communities, I took sabbatical from the enterprise where I managed front-end development teams and I studied user experience through subscriptions, meetups, conferences, and got certified at NYU. It's a tough call to find a UX job without a strong personal UX portfolio. There's no way back. UX is my thing and a long-time passion. What would Tom's advice be on UX best practices to get into the UX field if all that most hiring managers care about is having three to five years of experience and a strong portfolio. Thank you so much. Now, I nearly was going to leave this out because it's kind of a bit off topic. But then I thought about it and I realized what better way to make an impression when you're in an interview than to exhibit confidence in articulating design. So what would you say to Alatom? Yeah, so the, the, the challenge of, of not having a portfolio or of, of not – Thinking that you have a strong portfolio—I mean, that's that's a real thing. Um, you have to be able to demonstrate that you're able to kind of do some of this work, um, and 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 so that's important. And I and, and so I think I would encourage anyone to, um, if you don't have the opportunity to work on uh, the UX of a specific product, maybe because you're not currently working in UX because you're a developer or you know whatever you know whatever your role is, look for opportunities to create that for yourself. Right? Make up make up a product. 
there's just just be creative and just think of something that hasn't been done before and and write up a, a, a case study on what problems are being solved with this and what your design thinking is. The, the, the truth is that all UX is articulating design decisions. And I think this is something that we, that we kind of fail to, to recognize. Design by itself can just be pretty. And depending on the genre and depending on the business or where you are, it's okay to have a design that is just aesthetically pleasing. But user experience naturally demands that we have these explanations for our designs. And so I think you're right that the ability to articulate your design decisions, that's what UX is all about. Um, and I think, I think that's what most people miss on their portfolios. They have a bunch of screenshots with some really glossy looking apps that they designed. But I have no idea what their thinking was. I have no idea what the problem was that they were trying to solve or, or what the issue was that they were overcoming, what metrics they improved when it was all said and done. And I think that takes, that takes a lot uh, more thought and time. And, and as, a, as a hiring manager, um, I, I look at people's portfolios initially. like that. It's important for me to look at that. But it's a lot more important for me to understand how they're thinking about design. And I, while I want to always know that someone has a demonstrated, you know, quality of work in their portfolio. It's, it's almost always on, for me, just kind of a cursory glance. Like you, you want to see that they have the basics covered. If they have an in-depth case study, I'll read the whole darn thing. But, um, really what I look for is their answers to questions. And I, when I, when I interview people before I interview them, I send them a questionnaire where I ask them just several questions about their thoughts on design. And I value their answers to those questions a lot more than I value their, their, their portfolio. But, um, I would say that if, if, if getting into UX is really that important to you, as, as this person has said, there's no way back, right? This is my passion. Well, then you're going to have to find the time for it. If you already have a full-time job and it's not UX, well, guess what? You're going to be working late. Uh, you're going to be doing stuff on the weekend, trying to build that portfolio and, and bring yourself up to speed so that you can present yourself. Do freelance work. Go to a freelance website and just offer to do some work for cheap or free just to get that experience under your belt so that you can show people that you actually uh, know what you're doing. And the last question that comes from the forums is from Mark Seabridge. Mark says, Hi Tom, working agency side, one of my biggest challenges is being brought into a project at the last minute, often with very short deadlines to meet. This can mean lack of time for research, having to resort to questionable third-party research, and sometimes being unable to take any research out at all, despite pushback. Relying on hypothesizing solutions that aren't validated, Although the obvious answer here is to move on, I enjoy the challenge of making change in a tricky environment. What advice would you have for this situation? Well, I mean, first of all, I feel your pain. In fact, I think that this situation is probably more common than, than most of us would like to admit because um, even in my own client projects at, at Batovi, it's often the case that we just don't, we don't have the time or the budget to do what we want. You know, research and user testing are sometimes the first thing to go, right, when, when you're pressed for time. Um, I've found, though, that the value of these disciplines um, in, in making our design decisions on projects are best demonstrated just simply by doing them to, to the best of your ability and with, and with very real constraints. But just doing something 
and then bringing that knowledge with you to that next meeting. I mean, if, 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 if time is really short, it might mean that you only have 30 minutes to go uh, interview someone or grab some people in a coffee shop, right? And the first few tests like that or the partial data that you can you know, glean from the analytics, at first it's going to feel like a hack and it's going to feel pretty fake and shaky. But it's certainly better than, than basing your decisions on nothing at all. And I believe that if you do that, if you do your best to just squeeze in whatever you can, um, that your stakeholders are eventually going to start to get it, right? They're, they're going to see that value because you're demonstrating it. You're not, you're, don't ask them permission to go do a, a, a week-long user test. Um, just do it first and ask for forgiveness later because you, you want to be able to demonstrate that value. I think over time, you'll be able to grow the amount of, of, of time and space and maybe even the budget that you have to do that stuff. But th there's no doubt that many organizations, this is a daily uphill battle. Every day, you kind of have to wake up and, and decide that you're going to make this a priority, um, even when other people don't. Um, it takes time. It takes some proven experiments to to really establish it as a, as a regular practice on projects. Yeah, I can definitely echo that sentiment in um, my own experiences where I've just realized that we're only, we just have to set expectations based on if it's the first time engaging with a client and they're at a certain point in their journey to enlightenment about this stuff that there's only so much you're going to be able to do. But as you develop a relationship with them and, and like you said, get some runs on the board um, for the first project, then the second and third and fourth project, you'd be surprised at how much easier it is to to, to get what you want because you've, you've proven that there's value in this stuff. Well, and sometimes it's just about being purposeful about, you know, planning these things with in advance enough that people know what to expect, right? Because I think, I think what happens sometimes is we, we know that we should, you know, do some user tests or we know that we should we should comb through the analytics and kind of try to find the answers to some of these problems. Um, but we don't put it on the calendar and we just kind of assume that we'll be able to work it in and we never do. And I think, uh, but we would never do that with our vacation time, right? We would never do that with our, with a holiday or with our time off, right? That goes on the calendar in advance and our clients know what to expect. Oh yeah, I'm taking Friday off. Well, everyone adjusts. We need to, I think we need to get to a point where we can do the same thing with um, the with doing research, right? We need to just tell everyone, "Hey, I'm not working uh, with on your project this Friday because I'm doing research for your project, right?" Just pretend that I have the day off. I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna shut off Skype and Slack or whatever. I'm not gonna check my email, and I'm gonna spend a whole day just doing this one thing. Um, you know that they would adjust for you if you were sick or if you had to, to take to take some time off. And I think we can develop the, that same habit. And you do that a few times, you'll start to create that value for them, I think. Cool. Well, Tom, this has uh, been a fascinating chat and um, some real nuggets of wisdom that you've shared today. I really appreciate that. If people are interested in um, keeping up with what you're up to online, uh, where should they go to, to follow you? Do you have a Twitter yeah, I'm active on, on Twitter. My Twitter handle is just Tom Griever, T-O-M-G-R-E-E-V-E-R. -E 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 and uh, also on LinkedIn, you can find me. Um, the, the website for my company is uh, Bitovi, B-I-T-O-V-I dot uh, com. And um, I'd, love to, I'd love to hear from you guys. If I, if I didn't quite answer your question or if you have an additional question based on something I said, please 
uh, feel free to, to contact me. My email address is tom at betovi.com. And if you post any more questions in the forum thread, um, I'm sure we can uh, twist Tom's arm to jump in and, and answer there as well. So make sure you check out his book, Articulating Design Decisions, out um, through O'Reilly. Um, thank you very much for your time, Tom. Yeah, thanks, Matt. I appreciate it.